Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff, the good folks at Rogue Media and I kind of screwed up this week and we double booked. Let's say I screwed up because it was last minute. So we double booked our guest on Thursday. Um, we didn't double book. The studio was double booked. I barely had a booking. Um, so we were unable to record our podcast for this week. So I'm giving you a best of. This is my man, Tim Brooks. Now, we aired this first back in March. So a lot of you have not heard it. Tim was a phenomenal lacrosse player in southeastern Pennsylvania, a highly sought-after recruit, went to my college, University of Richmond, and he flamed out right away, ended up back home and ran a drug ring around the suburbs of Philadelphia, if you want to call it a ring. But he was busted and was on Good Morning America. Uh, CBS This Morning was recruited or, I guess, pitched to interview by the Oprah Winfrey Show, Dr. Phil and Tim decided to stay silent until just recently. And just recently, as far as a couple of years ago, he has started a rehab outfit for young men in Pennsylvania. I've had a chance to hang out with some of these young guys who are getting sober and who are on fire. And Tim is on fire and he kind of walks on air. And for me, it's really cool to see it come full circle because I knew this dude in his first couple of days of sobriety. I know his dad. I've had a chance to hear his grandfather uh, talk on, on AA meetings. Uh, this guy, this family, the real deal. And uh, I want you guys to listen to Tim Brooks. But first, my main man in Hermosa Beach, Kevin Souza. Stand by the ocean floor. Tim Brooks, I was telling Mike, uh, the producer here, that uh, you know he can buckle up for the next hour or so because this is uh, this is one hell of a story. First, I want to start with your sobriety date, March first of uh, twenty fourteen. So that's about seven, I guess, seven years. Yeah, it'll be seven years if I can make it a week. What was your last day like using? Um. Yeah, you know, it's, that's a good question. A, a detective asked me that question the first day I had sober, or the, the last day too, which was um, uh, I was I was 18 years old. Um, By the way, you said the detective asked you that question. Yeah, the detective asked me that question that late late that night, and um, he uh, you know woke up. I had an internship working at a hedge fund, so I, I threw on a fancy outfit. It was a Friday. Spent eight hours, kind of probably you know searching for things that that business would not want me to search for on the internet while I pretended to work. Um, and, and then I went to like a parking lot and I got high with one of my buddies. And I remember like being in this parking lot and, uh, you know, I grew up in right outside Philadelphia in an affluent area and we were on a college campus and this minivan that was like green with a white door, like rolled into the parking lot and it just like didn't look right. And I remember like, just, uh, just being like, let's get out of here. This doesn't feel right. Anyway, you know, 9 p.m. rolls around. I got five detectives in my kitchen, and the, the party's over, right? I get totally busted for selling a bunch of weed and 
parents exposed. And I remember a, my a family friend had a friend that was a lawyer came over and he walks in the living room after I, this was like a, a two hour stalemate of no conversation. And the lawyer, like, he's like shaking hands with these detectives. Like he already knows who they are, calling them by name, asking about the kids. And he pulls me into like the side room and he's, and he's like, Timmy, these detectives are the kind of guys that I usually see down at the port in Philly busting like multi-million dollar heroin deals. It really doesn't make sense why they are in your living room. You should probably just get on it. Um, and, and that was really the beginning of it all. You obviously started, your sobriety abruptly started, started that day. But take us, you, know, you mentioned the detectives, you mentioned the investigation. We'll get to your, your addiction and your sobriety, but just take people through exactly what you're talking about there, exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I was selling a lot of weed, right, and and um, big big fat for sale sign on it. But I was I was doing it in a really kind of secretive way. I, I had, uh, you know, early early that um, that was in last day of February, right? So that that fall fall of I guess 2013, I don't know, 2014. Um, I uh, I basically dropped I dropped out of college. I went to Richmond. Dropped you out went to Richmond. You, you were you were an outstanding lacrosse player. Yeah, some would say. I, I had some good days. <laughs> you um, went to the Haverford School, a, a real high-profile lacrosse program there, a high-profile school to begin with outside of Philadelphia. You you achieved great success there. And then you're going to Richmond. I went to Richmond, too, so this was going to be their first, I think, their first class, right? Yeah, I was their first, like, recruit for Division One, And, and um, yeah, lacrosse was my life, right? It, it still is a part of my life. But way at, back then, it was my identity and success in it and having things to point at and and being that guy and coaching little kids, it was it was everything to me. And so I went off to Richmond and, and quickly dropped out, which was no nothing more than just a symptom of being, being a total uh, booze hound and not being able to balance the responsibilities of being a Division One athlete, but really pointing the finger at injury and depression and all of these things that weren't addiction, really, right, that a lot of us end up doing. And people, and people buy into that because you've built up credibility through your athletic career and just being a student. I would guess that's my experience. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I, I was, I was, um, I was motivated not to do the right thing, but I was motivated to make people think I was a person that was doing the right thing, and I, tr I achieved that by having material things that I could point to, and by lying about who I was. And examples could be good grades, um, internship opportunities, college scholarships, girlfriends, uh, friends. Um, parents of fifth graders wanting me to babysit their kids. And then behind the scenes, I, I pushed really hard to get tuned up with my buddies and have what I thought was fun that quickly turned into this chase that never ended in anything other than uh, feeling like it wasn't enough. And so the chase for the police ends that day in your living room, or you call it a somewhat chase. They've been following you for a short period of time. You come back from Richmond in the fall of 2017, you start to deal drugs and it didn't it didn't last that long. I mean, for those of you who don't know, which is probably a lot of people if you're listening around the country to refresh your memory or, or just to let you in on something. Tim, I remember you and I, I had been sober a little bit and we were kind of in the same circle. And I'm down in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I'm living at the time, and you pop up on Good Morning America doing a perp walk. <laughs> yeah, I did. So yeah, so I you know, I, I left Richmond in uh in September of twenty and then in February of 2014, I got arrested. And like a couple weeks later, I was all over every news station you could think of. It was pretty wild, right? It was like 
Dr. Phil and Oprah leaving answering machines on my on my phone asking for interviews and uh, it was rough, right? News news cameras at the end of my street. At the time, I had already like been a part of a structured recovery program for a couple weeks, and I was trying to take direction. And um, those two worlds I had I had been living, like the one the person I actually was, and this the perception I had created for other people to believe, like they they clashed in in an instant uh, through the media outlet. And uh, how the hell did you manage that? You're 19 years old, or 18 or 19 years old. I had like 42 days of sobriety and this, and, and this hits and this hits. Yeah. So I got a group of people in my life saying like, go to, a, go to a meeting every day, be open and honest, like don't manipulate, don't lie, don't hang out with the old friends, like get a job, go exercise. I get all this direction, which is counterintuitive, which is exactly what I don't want to do. And then I have, you know, a big legal consequence coming that I didn't know what it was going to be. And then all of a sudden the media hits and I just felt, I felt crippled, right? Like I was, it, there was a huge part of me that was like so embarrassed and ashamed of who I actually was. And I, I remember like being at a grocery store and like running into a mother of like a first grader that I, at my high school that I had like, that had invited me to her house on his birthday to be like the guest appearance for his birthday party. And, and I couldn't even look at her. Like, I just, I couldn't look at her. Um, and, uh, and that was what, and I knew that like, like as badly as I wanted to drink and get high, I, I knew I couldn't. I knew that if I did that, it would make my legal consequences so bad. So I kind of just did everything else. Like I was, I was not, I was not humble. I was not friendly. I was not happy. Like I took computers and threw them through windows. I, I beat the hell out of my bedroom with like my dad's favorite golf club when he wanted me to do yard work. Like I was, I was an angry person in early recovery. But you didn't drink and you didn't use. I didn't, yeah. I don't know how that didn't happen, but um, I didn't. How were you able to find that gear, or when were you able to find that gear where you were able to articulate what you were feeling emotionally? Because for me, I was talking to another alcoholic and addict just yesterday, a guy who was you know, getting sober, and I said, the moment that you actually are vulnerable with another dude in AA, right, which is counterintuitive, like you said, um, the moment you can reveal that that's when the magic starts to happen how long did it take for you you mentioned 42 days this media circus is outside of your house were you able to at that point open up to people or did it take a little bit um i was pretty open off off the rip right and and my understanding of that is like um when i when i was told like i need to be a sober person for now i wasn't i didn't want to be sober i didn't want to do the next right thing i didn't want um I didn't want any of it, but I, I knew that I, that really like not so much my drinking and drugging, but the way I was treating people, the lying and the manipulating had, I, I looked at that as the root of the consequences I was facing. And I, and I honestly wanted to try to work away from that. I, I was never committed to a life of sobriety. I just kind of approached it like, Hey, this is something I have to do now. When I get through my legal stuff, I'll revisit. Um, and, and then I would say the best thing, one of the best things that happened to me is like, I have a family member that's in long-term recovery and that person connected me with like you know people like you like seven guys that were in recovery that made it look attractive that had a lot of good things going in their lives and i went to coffee and lunch with them and and they um everyone said the same thing they said hey this is what i did and if you do it it could work for you too and they said the number one thing is that if you want these people to be able to help you you have to be 100 percent honest um and that and that kind of struck me and still stays true to me today relative to like those relationships and, and how it, how it works to like overcome tough times and, and find a better path. And it is tough. You know, you got sober at a young age and you work with, 
with young guys that get sober at a young age, or a, a lot of whom are trying to get sober at a young age, and it's difficult. And I remember being around some of your experiences. I remember myself and Peter F., who I've talked about on this this podcast before, who he got sober when he was like 18. I remember we went with you to Campus Corner uh, by, Vill- by Villanova, and then we went to see a movie, some action movie that wasn't that bad. And I think, you know, you were, yeah. you were just kind of hanging on. I felt good hanging out with you, you know, and I was hoping, like, Hopefully he's getting something out of this. And apparently maybe you kind of were because now I see you give it away freely. Like it's natural to you. Yeah, man. I, I remember that day we, we hit the movies and, and did dinner. That was, that was special. And, um, you know, those are, I think I'm a big believer that like the process of recovery is teachable and repeatable, but I think what it takes to like find the success that we're all hoping for is like, you gotta be all in. And, and if you're not all in, then then we find ourselves in the same miserable place we came from and like those little things um and and putting yourself out there and doing the right thing and and not letting a bad day turn into a bad week turning into a big mistake like those are the difference makers and i certainly make a lot of mistakes and there are periods in my last seven years where i certainly have not been all in um but i'm lucky to have like guys like you in my life that are willing to call me out on that shit and um and help get me get going in the right direction you're dealing with this media storm and now the court process starts, but you're staying sober. Take me through that whole situation, how that works out. So I ended up going to 30 day treatment, which was kind of like for optics. Like at the time I had, you know, maybe a bunch of weeks of recovery in my pocket. And, you know, when you're going through it, you never know. But looking back, I was doing, I was taking recommendations and, but I got sent to treatment because my lawyer said that's probably what you should do. And I got a lot of value out of that, like learned a whole lot. And, and um, and got out of there, and I, you know, through this, that whole process of early recovery, I, I knew I was having, I knew I had this legal case. And what what really is not awesome about getting arrested is like there's no specific timeline; it's all open ended. And so, is it going to be six months? Is it going to be a year? Is it going to be two years? How long is this case going to take? Um, and it ended up being 11 months total, which it, you didn't, I didn't know. And and so that whole 11 months for me was this just experience of um the case was was 11 months or the case and yeah okay well the case ends at 11 months okay um so you know went through all all the legal stuff and and in the in my in my life you know those 11 months were um the goal was like you know go through a 12-step program um be open and honest with a with a clinical team and get a job like develop a routine right like routine and structure is what what helps me like be the best person I can be. And that was so foreign to me before recovery came into my life. Um, I just like to do things the way I like to do. And, and, uh, and so that kind of developed kudos to a lot of people to helping me. I got a job working at a flower shop, which I often joke is like the closest thing you can do to, to selling weed. Um, and, uh, and, but when I showed up, I was a charity case. Like I, I couldn't do anything. And, you know, you point at a flower, I'll tell you what it is now. Um, and, uh, so that was kind of cool, interesting, weird, whatever. What was it like um, for you? You know, you were a high profile, I just want to jump in. You're a high profile athlete. You're a guy who's making appearances at first graders, uh, birthday parties. And now you're working at a flower shop in the same town where you were all those things. How was that? How did that humility help you in sobriety? It it was essential. Right. And like, um, when I started, I probably thought to myself, like, this is above me and I don't know why I'm doing this. And, and by the time I finished it, I reflect upon reflection, it was exactly what I needed. Um, and, and it, it you know, I, uh, it, it was essential, right? Little things like that exercise, waking up, making my bed, you know, developing, uh, you know, 
spirituality in my life, all, all of those things were like giving back to other people that were in having a harder day than I was like all acts of like just trying to trying to not trying to resist those those choices I make that often like are what I think I need but take me to bad places you get done this trial and you get sentenced to jail yeah so my my best my attorney tried to negotiate with the with the, the legal the district attorney and uh, I think the best offer I was I offered I was offered was a four to eight year um deal so if i wanted to take the four to eight i could have just said yeah i'll take it and let's throw me on the bus but we said no thanks and we you know through all of the minutiae of negotiating kind of got to a place where i showed up to a sentencing hearing where a judge was going to decide how long i was going to go for for and he had some guidelines that that were about one to two years in in prison um and uh and he had the flexibility to like go either way he could he could basically give me probation up to like about three years i think um, that was the setup going in. And you're almost a year sober at this time. Yeah, so I just celebrated 11 months right before that day. And so you go to this, this, this. Uh, you're in front of this judge, and I know this backstory a little bit. And, and a bunch of guys from the program are there that day. Yeah, I mean, um, so I showed up, big, big courtroom, probably like a hundred seats. And it's a sentencing like hearing, pretty much, right? Sentencing hearing, yeah. And uh, there were over a hundred people from from the recovery community came to support me, right? And it, um, I can't talk about what I've been through without giving that statement because that's like just kudos to people showing up. Um, and and I, I, you know, what I often say is like, when I was getting tuned up, I had 30 friends that I thought were gonna be like my boys for life. And, you know, we did everything together, school, athletics, hung out together. And, uh, you know, I went to a sentencing hearing and, and 100 strangers that I had known for only a year came to support me. Two of those 30 friends came. Um, so it really, it was, it was unbelievable. Before I say, how, how did it make you feel? So what, what happens with the sentence? So a bunch of people go up and talk about the change I've been through. And, and the whole strategy was like, don't take a guy that's doing the right thing and put him in an environment where it's hard to do the right thing. That environment being jail. And um, the judge, you know, there were, because of the media and the politics, I don't think there was really ever an opportunity, even if I, he did think I was a unicorn, to, to let me get off. So they ended up sentencing me to just about the guidelines, which were nine to 23 months in jail, which was kind of a victory because it wasn't, it was below the threshold of being sent to state prison. So I was going to stay like within the county. So do you go right to county jail from that sentencing here? Yeah. So I remember, you know, that my lawyer goes like, you know, can he say goodbye to his family and the judge is like during visitation and 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 they slap the jewelry on me and everyone's like good luck Timmy and I'm like thank you and I'm just kind of like game on um Where, where's where's your attitude down. at at that point like from a recovery standpoint like are you feeling like okay if, if I continue to work the program I will be okay yeah you know I, I going like I knew I was going to go and I was I had accepted mentally that I was going to go for two years and I had done I had done coffees and lunches with like people that did time that were in recovery and tried to learn a lot about it. By the way, and that's what we do, right? I mean, if you ask your sponsor or if I ask my sponsor, hey, I need help with this, he may not have the answer and experience himself, but he'll find you somebody who does. Absolutely, that's right on. And so I had done that, and and um, and I was, you know, my sponsor said something like, uh, he said, Timmy, this experience is going to change you. And, and that kind of freaked me out. And I was like, I don't really want it to change me. Like, and, 
And, um, and I was certainly like very committed to recovery and, and staying sober through that experience. And I knew I was going to have like a five-year probation after, which means like if I went in and was a total nightmare, I, I wouldn't have gotten out with what they call good time, which is basically like if you behave, which is a really low bar, naturally you get out a little early. Um, so I was still in this mode of like, I got to get through this thing sober, but I want to do it in like the best way possible. What kind of recovery did you find, uh, when you were incarcerated? Um, very, very little, <laughs> um, which is, it's, I'm laughing cause it's like, it's, it's actually really sad, right? Like, um, you know, there's this whole pot, you know, what I found honestly was like, if I had to put a number to it, I think like 80% of the people I met in jail were struggling with some form of mental health or addiction. And, um, and related to recovery, like for me personally, I had routine, I had prayer, I had a telephone that I paid for and, and like a pay phone. And, and then probably twice a week, there was a 12 step meeting, um, where occasionally folks like you that were active in the community would like come in and I'd get to run into them. Um, but those meetings were not really real meetings because, um, in the jail I was in, uh, if you think of a jail like a classroom and different, different a school and different classrooms don't get to interact with each other when they host a imagine they host a 12 step meeting like in the library folks from different pods could go out so really they used like ironically the the 12 step meeting as a place to like sell and distribute contraband between blocks um, so it was a little bit of a, wow. of a uh, little bit of an oxymoron and so, that's unbelievable so. That's all that's going on, and but you managed to get through. And, and while you're finishing up this stint, you eventually find your lacrosse career again, or, or you start to you yeah, start you so start to work on going to school and reengaging la lacrosse. Yeah. So my last couple months, I was on work release where they they open up the door in the morning and they let you out and go to work, and then you come back at night, and they give you an option to like either drive yourself or if you have a car or take public transportation and I opted for public transport because you get uh, double travel time. And, um, and, and I was, you know, I'm a, I'm a fortunate lucky kid that came from a family where I, I had never been on tra public transportation really. And that was my first exposure. And, and, uh, and there was an advertisement on the bus for a college that was local called Cabrini university. And I, uh, my last, maybe in like late August, um, I threw in an application and the next day, while I'm at work, I get a call from the woman at admissions and she says, uh, is this Timmy Brooks? I say, yeah. She goes, did you accidentally mean to check the box that says you're a felon? And I'm like, no, man, no, man, that's not, that's not an accident. That is me. And, um, anyway, I went through a long process with them and they were willing to give me a shot. Um, so, you know, I, I went into jail the day after, uh, Malcolm Butler picked off Tom Brady when the, when the Patriots beat the Seahawks in the Super Bowl, And I, and I got out of jail. Uh, the Wednesday before Thursday night football. So I was there the entire NFL offseason <laughs> of 2014, which, which sucks actually, because there's apparently it's like a good, you know, jail's not a bad place to watch football. And um, I've heard Michael Vick actually say that interviewed. Yeah, that's good. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I have. He says there's a lot of know-it-alls though. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, so the day I got out, I ended up, you know, I, I missed like the first week of, of, of class because I was still behind bars. And um, got out the next day. I was sitting in an accounting class. Now, how much do you think that helped you? I mean, you help, you know, and we'll get into what you're doing now with, with the recovery community and, and having recovery homes. For me, I'm a product of long-term recovery, right? I went to a treatment center. I went to a halfway house. And I remember a guy told me, and I was hedging on going 
to this halfway house for another five months. And the guy was like, dude, it's a couple months for the rest of your life. And I showed up there and everything I had to do, well, I pretty much had like an itemized day. And that helped me beyond what I ever thought it would. For you, how much did it help that you leave jail, you leave being incarcerated, and you go right to a schedule? And I think college sports is really good for, for, for a kid like me or maybe a kid like you. you got to be somewhere all the time. Yeah. It, you know, in the moment, it was like it was hard to transition out of that environment and, and go back into, um, like, real life. And, and uh, going into jail, like, I was really worried that I was going to have to live a manipulative, deceptive life in to order survive. to get by, to survive, and that that was going to take over all of this work I had done to try to exit that way of living. Was there and a lot like, of fear was, around that? Yeah, a lot of fear. And and um, and there were certainly components. Like, I told people in jail that I was from, like, a town, three towns over, that's more of a blue-collar town. And, and I, I uh, you know, you can't just be by yourself in there. you got to people always ask, did you make friends? I said, no, I didn't make friends, but I was friendly with people like, Hey, will you watch my, you know, ramen while I go to the bathroom, that kind of thing. And, um, and so getting out, like there was a, you know, I remember like walking into the bathroom at this accounting class and just totally crying, like just overwhelmed with emotion of, of this whole experience and kind of feeling like I got through it. It's okay. But also like now what? Um, Cause for me, it, it had, you know, recovery to that point had always been like suck up, early recovery and get through this miserable legal experience in jail. And now that I was through it, I was like, I didn't, I didn't really know. Like I never liked school before, um, before recovery. Like I always just felt like it was a prerequisite to hang out with my friends and play sports. And, um, but I was kind of just willing to give it a shot. So there were components of the structure that helped, but there was also a part of me where I kind of felt like a hardcore beginner and having to get like replugged into a routine that was going to, that I was going to have willingness to follow. The healthiest apparel you'll ever wear. Discover the world's first apparel that supports your immune system and fertility. Lambs created the only scientifically proven technology that blocks EMFs. Phone, 4G, 5G, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth to protect your health. Make the better choice with radiation-proof apparel you'll love to wear. Inspired by NASA spacesuits, Lambs, a collection of comfortable apparel that blocks wireless radiation. Visit GetLambs.com today. Although it's been 20 years since the events of 9-11, many of us can still remember it like it was yesterday. America, and the world even, has never been the same. From Rafaelion Media, the King of the World podcast series explores the many repercussions of that day for the American Muslim community through the journey of host Shah Jahan Han, a high school senior at the time. Shah Jahan's story is something our listeners will respond to. Throughout much of his young adult life, he found himself abusing drugs and alcohol as he struggled with his mental health and his identity as a Muslim in this new America post 9-11. King of the World is his story told in seven parts. You'll learn about his struggle with sobriety and belonging alongside the major headlines of the last 20 years. Written and produced by American Muslims, King of the World is a sometimes comical, often heartbreaking examination of adversity that all Americans need to hear. Subscribe now to King of the World wherever you get your podcasts. As if the McCrispy couldn't get any better, Bacon and Ranch just entered the chat. The Bacon Ranch McCrispy, available at participating McDonald's for a limited time. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. How, how, 
how dedicated were you or uh, talk to me about, I guess, how was the program situation like in your life at that time? When you, when you go back, you go back, you're out of jail and now you're, you're in college. You know, how important was it for you to get to get to meetings and be around other alcoholics? Um, it, it was the most important thing than, than anything. I mean, before I went in, I went into jail, I was like two to three meetings a day kind of guy. And that was, you know, I don't, life didn't get better. It just got less hard. And, and that was something that, that allowed me some relief from the hard days that I was experiencing. And, um, when I got, uh, when I got out of jail, I, I was, it was partially intuitive to like re-engage in that process that I had come to find like relief and, and maybe small moments of peace in before. Yeah. I tell people sometimes I have smart feet, you know what I mean? Like I just, I, sometimes I just end up in those, in those meetings and around those people. The idea about this podcast of talking recovery, it's not always unicorns and rainbows. And sometimes you just go to feel less worse or you work a program to exactly. feel less work. But, 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 you know, I, I got a buddy who, you know, named Clint, who says feelings are like the weather. You can't control them and they change. And, yeah. and they always yeah, change. <laughs> and they always change, you know, and, but it's true. I've been telling myself that recently when I'll, I'll be walking down the hall at work and I'll feel like crap and I'll be like, just, you know, get to a meeting today at noon. Uh, and get and get through today, and 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 tomorrow you'll feel completely different. And then the next day, I'm walking down the hall, and I'm like, oh yeah, remember yesterday when I told myself I'd feel different? I do feel completely different. And I didn't get drunk, and I didn't do anything crazy. Taking on that school of thought uh, is is a big deal. So I want to get back to you. You're you're in college. You're at Cabrini, and so you get a second lease on life, and you get a second lease on lacrosse too. Yeah, yeah. So I I shot an email to the coach and said, hey, like I'd love to try out for your team. Maybe we could get together and. And Cabrini is close to where Cabrini just interject. Cabrini is close to where you grew up. This guy probably knows yeah, exactly it's, who it's you are. Right next to Villanova University. Yeah, he he knew who I was, and, and he reached out, and we had we met each week for two months, and he kind of like vetted me to make sure he wasn't taking on like this cancer that the news the newspaper said I was, and um, and and he was willing to give me a second chance. So I I went and met with the team and kind of relayed a version of my experience to them and, and, and I left the room and then the team voted, um, is this a guy that we're willing to accept into our group to give him a shot? And, and they did. Right. And, and I think for the first time since I had been in recovery, like my whole experience at Cabrini, I, I never, you know, relative to my teammates and coaches, I never felt like anyone other than just another player on that team, which was, which was awesome. It was really, really cool. And that's kind of goes back to program stuff, just to be a, a part of something. I was listening. To, I was listening to something yesterday, and it's, you know, when you're an athlete, you 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 get a chance to win. Everybody's rowing in the same direction, and it's almost like recovery is almost the same way. You get to have small victories. Can you compare the two a little bit? I mean, with both of your experience, because that's got to be awesome. You go back to school. You're a part of something. You know, you're winning games. You're losing games. The same thing in recovery. Yeah, you know, I I think part of like even my personality, like when I was in high school, I, it, the concept of like putting in hard work for, for two or three opportunities to score a goal, like it wasn't foreign to me, right? Like you play a season of games, there's, there's maybe 15 games, you're going to get to take 50 shots and you got to make them count. And all the practice you do is to prepare for those moments. And in recovery, there's a lot of similarities. You go to meetings, you get grounded, you develop relationships, you go through a proven process. And then there come these moments where the only thing between the difference, the difference between you picking up and not picking up is your relationship with spirituality or your, or your peers or your sponsor, your support system. 
And in those moments, you got to be strong. So I, I tried to channel like some of that logic of thinking into the recovery experience for me. And, and, and I think in, 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 as a result, like, because I felt like my life was getting better through recovery, it, it made it easier to also channel that experience that I had in recovery into my new experience in school and my new experience in lacrosse and, and all the above. How were you when you got back out? How did you integrate into society from a standpoint of what, what, what were you feeling people were thinking or saying about you? Again, not that it's any of your business, but was there a feeling that, hey, this is, this is rough. People are looking at me like I'm, like I'm a convict. Or was it the opposite? Did you feel like, oh, everybody's giving me a second chance? Um, you know, to this day, I still get told no because of my past. Like, banks don't want to do business with me. Uh, organizations say, you're not welcome here. And so that I think that'll always be a part of just because of the mistakes I made. And, and in many ways, like those are clear reminders that when I drink and drug, that's the way I treat people. And, and it's good for me to hear that stuff. Um, but there's, there've also been folks in my life that like are willing to give second chances. And I never gave it. I didn't give to, you know, uh, I didn't give a crap about any of those people prior. Um, and, and I, I looked at life like I can, as long as I convince you that I'm worth a shot and you'll give it to me, I can do whatever I want with it. And now it's um, because those people are willing to give me a second shot. Like I owe it to them. I owe it to, to myself to, in the end, make sure they feel glad they did so. Um, so there's been probably a balance of both. You can say shit here, by the way. We'll, we'll, we'll go PG-13 right. for you. All right. Uh, uh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so, you so, felt me, me holding back. <laughs> yeah. So you have, you're in college uh, and then you get to succeed in sobriety. Like I mentioned, kind of a, there's there's a winning feeling sometimes that can that can happen in sobriety when you engage uh, when you engage recovery and then you start to feel good inside the rooms and then you also start to feel good about success in small victories outside of it. You don't win every day, but sometimes you do. You experience winning on the field. I think it was in your last year, Cabrini. You guys won a title, right? We did, yeah. We won a national championship in, in 2019. What the hell was that, was that like? Special. Um. It, it was it was so cool right and and like i, I remember it you know just to sum it up right like i remember being at like a, a diner when i had when i was counting days and and like seeing counting days for people that don't know it's like you first get sober and you've got hey a one day yeah. two day three day, yeah totally and and i was with a guy like you and and there was like a mini bar behind the register and i was like like i just kind of looked at who i was with and i said like how did how does that not get you going in the worst way possible and and his response was like he said you know one day there's going to be you're going to experience a feeling if you're lucky enough to stay on this path that's going to feel better than everything you've been chasing in that bottle um and and the whole lacrosse experience that i had at cabrini um on the good days was direct it was that right it was like like i had had successes but they were never genuine or authentic and and i there was always dishonesty and manipulation and and just bullshit within and and this whole lacrosse experience was like the first thing um first like really big thing that i really really wanted right wanted since i was like five years old like going to going to the lincoln, lincoln financial field in philly and seeing seeing people hold that trophy up and and uh, college final fours yeah yeah and um so it was awesome there were there were some cool aspects of just my experience within that year of having an injury and going into that game not thinking i was going to play ended up, you know, one of our starting attacks and ended up breaking his ankle. Doctor told me, like, I wasn't even cleared. Coach comes up, says, like, do you want to go in? And I'm like, absolutely. And 
you know, didn't stretch, didn't get taped, like didn't think I was going to go in and played the whole game, scored the game winning goal. Like it was, you know, a lot of those people that were, uh, that were at that game were at my fancy hearing. Um, so it was, it was a really cool collection of just like all of the people in my life that had been there from the, the good, the bad, the ugly to the, to the recovery, um, getting to share this, this really cool moment. I got to ask this question. Has anybody ever contacted you about taking your story and, and, and making it a movie or, or, a, or a documentary or anything like that? Yeah, I've gotten quite a few inquiries to do all sorts of crazy stuff. And, um, you know, I often go to my network of people and say, hey, what do you think? And, and most of the feedback is like, story's not over yet. Like, maybe there's a right time to do that. And But for now, like, my, my mindset on, like, the current stuff we have going on and in providing experiences for guys to get better and, and building a family and being trying to be a good husband and all, all the above. What was it like getting sober uh, at that, at that young age? I mean, a lot of people I tried when I was 27, I didn't try very hard and I, I, I wasn't ready, you know, it just wasn't my time. And, and by the grace of God, eventually it was, it doesn't work out that way for everybody. You're, you know, at 19 years old, you're faced with this pretty much you've got to get sober or else. How was that? I mean, so in my work, like we, we help a lot of young guys that in many ways were right where I was 17, 18, 19, 20. And, you know, first I'll say like, I have nothing to compare my experience to. So I, you know, there's a lot of older guys, not old guys, older guys that, um, that say like, you guys are so lucky. Like, I wish I had done it when you were that, when I was that age. And, and in the back of my head, I'm kind of like, I'm hurting just as bad as you're hurting now. Like I need this. And so I don't have much to compare it to, but like you said, like, I, I didn't, I don't, I didn't really look at it like I had a choice. And, um, what, what I tell or try to help people grab onto is like, for me, for me, I didn't want sobriety recovery. I didn't want this life that I've been lucky to, to, to experience, but I did, I did want to not go to jail and, and through not wanting to go to jail, I was willing to do things that led to this amazing life. So conversations I have with younger guys is like, all right, what do you want? Like most, some people say, I want to go back to college in, in 16 months. Some people say, I just want my parents off my back. Some people say, I just, I just want to not, you know, come from this miserable place of putting stuff in my body that I know I shouldn't. And, and I look to try to channel like, well, well, let's get motivated, you know, behind that and maybe try this process for eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 months. And, and if you get tricked the way I do, I guarantee you'll, you'll be happy. And if you try it and you give it your all and it's not for you, then, then go out and try another way. No one's going to try to stop you. People might say it's a bad idea, but no one's, we can't control anybody. We'll refund your misery. Uh, if you want to go back out there, you can knock yourself out. And, yeah. and, and, and you don't, you don't say it like, Hey, like shame on you. It's like, look, that's what, in, in my experience personally and seeing guys go in and out, I mean, that's what waits out there for you is, you know, if you're, if you are in fact an alcoholic or an addict, it's, it's kind of miserable when, when, when you're being active, how did this experience affect your, your family? You mentioned one day you're throwing a computer through a window yeah. and the next day you're winning the national championship. That's quite a ride for your parents. And, yeah, there, and, yeah, there was many days between that had a whole lot of substance, but um, you're spot on. Like my, I, I put my parents and my brothers through uh, a lot of stuff that I, that I hope no one ever has to experience. And um, you know, like people, some people say like, do you have any regrets? And I, and I say, no, I don't have regrets because I love my life today. But what, what, What's really hard is that like the choices I made, they hurt the people I love the most. And, you know, mom didn't sleep for a year. Uh, uh, you know, dad 
basically put his career on pause. Um, younger brother, you know, showed up as a freshman at the high school that I graduated from where the day before I got arrested, it was, it was pretty cool to be Timmy's older brother. And the day I got arrested, it became a lot where you want to be. And he was kind of right in a period of his life where he was beginning to like find his own identity. Older brother was in college and, and, you know, wanted nothing to do with me. And, and so it, it, um, you know, I've actually learned more in the last couple of years about the impact it had on my family than I did when I, you know, while I was going through the, the recovery process and, and all, all the above. Um, and, and so I, I certainly did a lot for them that, that wasn't fair to them, wasn't isn't what they deserve, took time away from my brothers that they deserve from my parents when my parents were focusing on my chaos and well, I'll everything. Well, I'll so, stop you right there, though, because I can say from, and I'm just thinking about this as you go, you know, I have gotten to know your dad a little bit, and, and I do remember that experience hearing him. He was open about what he was going through, you know, the stuff you just said. But now when, when I hear your dad say, you know, you'll get over it, and, and he says it in a completely serene tone, and I can tell I mean, and I know the guy's uh, genuine. I know what he's been through, and he seems like he's wearing life like a loose shirt today. I mean, that helps me sometimes when I'm like, well, he, obviously he got through this 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 rough situation. I can get through it too. I've, I've literally witnessed it. So it's weird how in recovery, right, those th the, the hands just extend everywhere. Yeah, it's special. It's really special. So I'm lucky to be in a better place with everyone in my family today, and relationships are just super well, cool. Well, and dude, nice and, now and, you're, and now you're giving back. Yeah, so when I when I graduated college in 2019, I, I um, you know, I, I kind of took a look at the treatment world and you know, which is co composed of like huge 30-day treatment centers. A lot of people call them rehabs, and and this whole world of transitional housing, um, of recovery houses, sober house, structured sober living. It seems like every town has a different name for what it is, and and all of these outpatient providers and kind of honed in on recovery housing, transitional living. And, and kind of came up with this perspective that I think I think it's a really cottaged industry. I think a lot of people set out to do a lot of good, and but despite um, good intentions, I hope they, they find themselves in positions where in order to make ends meet, they stop making choices for the people that live inside and they stop making choices for their business. Um, and it's created an industry where uh, people that are in their most vulnerable places in life, like where I was when I was leaving treatment, they get a 30-minute phone call with a guy that runs a house and a counselor saying, I think it's a good place. Um, and that's a huge problem, uh, a big enough problem that, that, I, that I went out and found five guys in long-term recovery that were committed to solving that problem um, with me. And, and we, put, we put a couple bucks together, and, and we've been, uh, we started a, a business called Synergy Houses um, that offers safe, structured, sober living homes. One house that's really, really cool for young adults, 18 to 35, 24 beds, 12,000 square feet, full-time staff. Like, it is, a, it is a sober fraternity house with guys like right around uh, young adult age, kind of average age is 24. And we come in, we go through the, we go through the 12 steps. We do, we have a lot of structure and routine within our day. We, we learn how to budget. We learn how to, we learn how to manage our lives and get jobs and, and, and get through this first year of chaos. And, um, and we get to do it while having a lot of fun, a lot of fun throughout the way. So um, I'm lucky to have a really awesome team of, of uh, people in recovery that work alongside with me and, and, um, and we've got some cool plans to try to get our foot in the door with some collegiate recovery stuff and, and really keep, keep expanding opportunities for young guys that are looking to change their life. So it's good. Um, live, in a, live in a safe place. It's called Synergy Recovery. And you, you actually came to, you yeah. know, I, I have experience. Synergy with, Houses, yeah. Synergy Houses, okay. Synergy Houses. Yeah. 
I remember being in those shoes. I remember getting uh, done at Karen Treatment Center, and I've been there for 30 days. And it was really my first moment where uh, there were maybe a couple moments before that, but I started to follow suggestions. They were like, dude, you need to go somewhere else. At the time, I didn't have a job. I had somebody who I was dating who I probably shouldn't, who I definitely shouldn't have been dating. And I remember being like, you know what? You're right. Like, this thing's working. Let me continue on this pathway. But it was followed by a 30-minute uh, phone call from a guy. I mean, it was really, it happened really fast, dude. And the next mm -hmm. thing you know, um, a check is being written and you're sitting down in a conference room at the new place you're going to live. And for me, luckily, that experience worked out. Now, the, the place I lived um, is, has, is since shut down. And I think there was from, you know, reportedly there was some stuff going on there, whatever. But you mentioned you and five guys are putting in for the right reasons. How are you, how is your system different? I think, you know, no one has to reinvent the wheel, right? Like there's a process out there and I think it can be communicated in many different ways. One thing that I like about our process is that, um, you know, time, to me, time can help, but it has not, not a whole lot to do with like where we are along our process, right? But it's all about what we're doing with that time. So within our house, we have a, we have a structured system where progression through um, doesn't come as a result of time in the house or time in recovery. It comes as a, as a result of the positive action we do. So what we get in is Which is huge, out. which is huge, by the way, because you get into one of those places, uh, this is my experience, and you're on the clock, dude. It's like, okay, I got 60 days down. Yeah. I got, you know what I mean? I got 90 days down. I'm almost out of here. And it's like, and, and at some point, you know, you're looking at the front door and you're excited to get out there, but really you're still so early in recovery. You don't have any idea what's on the other side. And the people around you, right, your sponsor, counselors usually or hopefully the house manager they really know where you are and, and what you're ready for and uh if you're in the right place you continue to take their suggestions which apparently you guys kind of work that way you, you're able to figure out where somebody is yeah yeah i was given a tip from a, a guy that's been in treatment working in treatment for a long long time and he said something like he said you know to me the best places in this world when they were designed they were designed for a certain type of person not just designed for anyone. And, uh, and that kind of hit me in like, well, who, who, how do we want to structure this? Who do we want to make it for? And so um, there's a lot of great programs out there and, and I'm a big believer that like we, we have an awesome staff house process for like young adults, like failure launch, um, people that have previous experience in recovery do well with us. Um, so it's been, it's been a lot of fun. It's really, really cool. It's so cool to see people change and, and you know, meet a guy on that first day you talk about, and then reflect back a couple months later. Um, it's hard that not everyone's not everyone's willing to take those suggestions and, and embrace. Um, but uh, I feel totally grateful and lucky to be able to do what I do. How important do you think the long-term recovery is, as compared to, hey, I got this 18-year-old kid. He just went to rehab for 30 days. Now we're going to send him home uh, to mom and dad. Yeah. You know. Like the long-term treatment process. Yeah, yeah, about? yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean. You know, you get done rehab, you go to a you know a, yeah. an extended care, a halfway house. How how much? How important do you think that is? I, I think it it has a huge impact on where we go and how things evolve. And if not the most important thing, you know, all of the data backs up that uh, staying engaged in a continuum of care gives us the ability to be successful in this way that we all want. And at the end of the day, like everyone's just shooting to be happy and there's many different ways to find it. Um, and, uh, and so I, I really think that, um, and, and even if the result of that time evolves into a relapse or a huge crisis, um, most guys 
state. You know, that is not lost time. I think the other thing that, that our system does is we overvalue our sobriety clock because, you know, somebody can spend a year doing a lot of great things and then reset that clock. And that doesn't take away the lessons, the values, the, the notoriety of the good things that were done within that period of time. So not just like, hey, that person's staying within a treatment continuum, but they're, they're having real-life experiences and being taught tools and, and, and staff and, and people that are trained to help are, being, are able to point out specific behaviors and, and tendencies that will teach, teach these people that if, if right now is not the time when you're willing to go all in, and one of our other friends says, like, you know, he's got a couple chips left in his back pocket. And so if that's the guy we're trying to help, then maybe success won't come this time, but he'll be able to grab things from this period to in- incorporate into his next once he learns that hard lesson the way he's trying to learn it. Clearly, you've got uh, the, the ability to, to speak articulately and, and get a message across. You speak to, you speak to teams and schools now. Uh, is, is that right? Yeah. So I haven't been able to do it since, since COVID, but, um, you know, my, my, uh, before it, you know, it, it kind of falls into this like prevention education bucket of going around and traveling to schools and, and presenting a, uh, what's essentially kind of a, a story that I've, the experiences I've been through kind of riddled with a lot of lessons that I've learned throughout the way. Um, I love it. It's so fun. It's so cool to like talk to kids and, um, there've been, I've had, I've had some really cool friendships and relationships come of it. I think every school you go to, the, the guidance counselor is always like, you got to talk to this kid. And, <laughs> and some of those, some of those kids are like, now nah, my buddy. And, um, and so it's, it's a whole lot of fun. What's the number one thing you, you want to get across to him? Because you're not necessarily talking to a room of addicts. You're talking to a room where, you know, maybe 10 kids are addicts. Uh, what, so what's, what's your, what's a broad message that can still get the recovery message across? Yeah, that's the golden question, right? And, and in the end of my spiel, I kind of talk about that, which is like, you know, if you're a person that can identify with what I've been through or feel like you think the way I think, then, you know, A, you're not alone. And what's awesome about schools is that most schools, they do a really good job of providing different types of personalities within their staff and administration to, to connect with every, every student. So athletic teachers connect with athletic students, arts and science teachers connect with arts and science teachers. And I had those people in my life, and I did not lean on them for guidance and support, and, but I could have. And so that's kind of my, my challenge to, to folks. And then for folks that don't think the way I think and will never, never struggle the way I struggle, then there's no reason we can't try to be better people. And, and I have – there's an exercise that I went through that I talk about um, in, in making a commitment to a single task and performing it each day and allowing that to break habits and be a better person. Um, and so I kind of throw that challenge at the group too. And, uh, and so overall, I think the message is just like, you know, regardless of where people are, what they struggle with, where they've been to, what, what the future looks like, you know, there is, I, everyone wants to be happy. And, and my pathway has been a proven process of recovery. And there's components of that that, that don't need to work, that can work for folks that have no experience with that. It's just honest, honesty, integrity, and, and committing to something, being accountable, responsibility. Um, and despite all that said, then mistakes still get made by me and, and everyone in the world. Taking it easy on yourself, I think in life for anybody is such a huge deal to have, to, to bring that perspective into, into your everyday life, which is, which is the ultimate gift, right? I mean, that's sometimes the hardest part of, of life in general is to not take yourself too seriously and enjoy the ride. Yeah, hundred percent. I certainly can get caught up in that. So one thing I want to ask you before I let you go, we're, we're winding down here. What is it like for you? as somebody who got sober at a young age and now you're helping and watching these young kids 
get sober? I mean, what what do you get from that? It, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of fun, right? Like, it's I'm so lucky to be able to blend like something I'm passionate in, which is recovery, into a into a career, and so I love that aspect of my life, and 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 it's it's fulfilling, right? It's cool to it 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 coincides with the principles of our process of giving back and doing the right thing. I think, you know, for me, it's important to separate uh, my, my own personal recovery from the work stuff I do um, in looking at them as very different buckets and, and still prioritizing mine over work. Um, Cause there's a huge part of the treatment industry where folks uh, relapse or fail because they kind of look at their job as how they stay sober. Um, yeah. And, well, I was talking about over. that. I was talking with a guy about that last week or two weeks ago. Like uh, you hear about that drug and alcohol counselors or people who live in, and work in the recovery field how you know it's just it's just as important for them and you can answer this for me or, or speak to this as it is for anybody else to take their recovery seriously yeah yeah it happens too much and it's scary and and so um at work i show up i work hard i'm a big believer in like do what you say say what you do it's it's embarrassing how many folks in the treatment world don't do what you say and say what you do so if if folks if people can be those providers they tend to, they tend to stand out as like good people good process um, and, and that's, and I'm, you know, it's cool to have good outcomes and see people change and, and all that stuff. And then in, in personal life, like I, I still love having, you know, guys in early recovery that are younger and, and I can relate to and be around and all the above. But I also have a lot of friends in recovery that are like older guys and, and, you know, big sober golf league. I know you're familiar with yeah. a bunch of old guys that we, we play with. And, <laughs> and, uh, and so I've got a pretty wide mix of like, uh, what my what my uh, what I'm exposed to through that lens, you know, with these recovery houses. I mean, you really are. And I'm just gonna say it. Like you're 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 on a life saving mission. I mean, you're saving lives. You talk about um, you know going to rehab. I mean, I'm sure there's a handful of people that you went to treatment with that are dead now. That's my experience, and that's that's what happens with this stuff. It it, it will kill you. You probably see that way too often yourself, right? People losing the battle, especially now when we talk about some of the substances that are being used. You're talking about guys going out and shooting up heroin. I mean, that that's a run that doesn't last very long. Yeah, I've been to too many funerals, and, and unfortunately, the, it's just going to keep growing. And, you know, every couple months I Google, you know, I look up the Facebook pages of the guys I was in treatment with, and there's no activity for the last two years. And, and then you Google it with the word obituary at the end, and there it is. And so um, people, I, people I lived with, people, people I went to meetings with, right? It's, um, and so it's the nature of, of what we're dealing with. And um, it takes a whole system. It takes a family. It takes the willingness, it takes the individual, it takes a good process. Um, I think, I think our whole, I think 12 step recovery does an unbelievable job of like welcoming in people and making it possible for, for groups that we're a part of to help new folks. Um, but I think there's a big, there's a big part of the treatment world that is uh, falling short of their responsibility to do right and provide service that they say they're providing. Um, so hoping that can improve. Dude, I'm so happy that you didn't ever talk to Dr. Phil and you gave me the exclusive. I mean, that's, <laughs> that means that he means, said, apparently, apparently he said he would be really nice. But. Um, Tim, I, I, so, so it's synergy houses. Um, any, anything else people need to know about you? No, man, that's it. I mean, it's, I appreciate the time uh, and super stoked for you and everything you have going on in the podcast. And it, this is really cool, man. Tim, dude, I appreciate it. Uh, you know, you taking the time uh, so much. And, I, you know, the idea is to help people. That's what you're doing every day. Um, and so coming on here, hopefully we can do a little more of that, man. I appreciate it. 
Awesome. Thanks, Pete. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. 